You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it was a packed weekend in MMA. We had the UFC down there in San Diego, some PFL, some Bellator. I think we're going to spend most of this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast talking about this UFC Fight Night event where Marlon Vera emerged with the KO win over Dominic Cruz in the men's bantamweight main event. A bunch of good fights on this card, honestly, and we are going to mix in as much talk about all of that as we can over there uh, in the PFL. Rory McDonald has retired from active MMA competition, so we will spend a little bit of time talking about that. It's a little bit of breaking news earlier today, though. We found out Shane Burgos. He's going to cross the aisle and go over there and fight in PFL. He announced that on the MMA Hour earlier today. Uh, it sounded to me like he had a fairly right-thinking and pragmatic set of reasoning behind this decision. Did you agree with that? You know what? If you're in prize fighting and you tell me you're jumping ship because somebody else has offered you more prizes, damn it, that just makes sense. That makes good-ass sense to me. Especially because... When he talked about it the way, he, something about what he said, where he was like, you know, I'm grateful to the UFC. It was a dream of mine since I was like 14 years old to be in the UFC. And I did it, 11 fights in the UFC. And then I started looking around to be like, all right, who's going to pay the most money for my services going forward? Yeah. Because that's what we're doing here. We've talked before about how there's there used to be this uh, sort of life cycle of the fighter being like, I just want to get in the UFC, whatever contract they give me as long as I get in there and then I start to make my name I'll take it I want to be a good soldier keep my head down not cause any waves uh plug right along on the UFC and then getting toward the end of their careers and being like wait a minute I think some of this was a bad deal for me yeah and by that point nobody gives a shit about them anymore and they're like disgruntled former fighter you know oh you're, you're washed up and you didn't become a champion so that's why you're criticizing and to be at this point be like you know that's enough fights in the UFC to kind of know how this is going to work, to kind of have a good sense of what your prospects might be going forward. And if free agency time comes and somebody else is willing to bid more for your services and you can go, well, I've been in the UFC. I'm, I'm leaving on a two-fight win streak in the UFC and leaving under my terms to go somewhere else and fight for more money. Don't let the the prestige that you imagine it has in your head or that it might have for some subset of the fans to make you fight for less because it's a hard business already. Yeah. And the way he put it, like, how am I going to go back to my, my kids and look them in the eye and be like, daddy turned down a chance to make a better future for you. Because if I talk to strangers on an airplane, they've heard of the UFC and they haven't heard of the PFL. That just don't make sense. Yeah. Five and two in his last seven, Shane Burgos, 31 years old. So he will cross over to the uh, the PFL still in something approaching his prime. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Shane Burgos over there. 
Uh, just a reminder, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram at CME if you nasty and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to go out and check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben folks and I are over there party rocking with three additional podcasts every single week you can check out the wednesday live chat live chat hashtag wild on wednesday where we spend a full hour answering questions from the beloved patrons of the cme we've also got the friday power hour podcast which is an additional hour of curated mma talk every week it features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast patreon power hour power rankings and then of course for the true heads the top tier patrons of the co-main event thursdays doing the damn thing the podcast where we talk about all the non-mma related content we think might be of interest to you guys we might talk movies, we might talk music, we might talk food, we might just talk about what's going on in our lives. It's a fun time. Check us out over there. Co-main event podcast on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash co-main event. Three handy tiers of patronage available for you. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash. Of course, that's C-A-C-H-E in the word cash, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, if you look at a still photograph of the knockout in Saturday's main event, it's clear that Chito Vera's toe ended up in Dominic Cruz's mouth. That's just gross, man. How are you going to do Dom like that? And round number that's two... What, that's what you're choosing to focus on. Rory Broke Mc, the man's whole shit. Rory, okay. Rory okay. McDonald, once the heir apparent to George St. Pierre for Canadian MMA, has called it quits at 33 years old over the weekend. And you know what? This seems like a pretty well-timed MMA retirement. And in round number three, nine wins, six and a half years without a loss. Many promises broken. Leon Edwards has been waiting a long damn time to fight for the UFC welterweight title. This weekend, he gets his chance. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Don't act like you want to have another man's toe in your mouth. You know what I also don't want to have is my whole nose change shape because of the rest of his foot and where that went. That was one of those uh, broken noses where you you don't even have to slow down the tape to see the exact moment that his nose gets all fucked up. It's That kick lands and it's like one moment his nose is fine, the next moment it is clearly not. I mean, I feel like maybe if that was what was happening to me, another man's toe in my mouth, that's kind of, that's like 1B on the list of my problems. 1A, broke-ass nose. We may have just uh, identified a difference between you and I, because I think you go out there (laughs) in a professional prize fight against another man. Broken nose is just a thing that could happen, man. That's already on the list of possibilities of negative outcomes that could happen. Another man punching his toe right into your mouth. That's, I mean, that's not something you train for. You're saying you're back there. You're warming up for the fight. You're ready to die. Yeah. You know, you're ready for anything. Mm-hmm. And, good day to die, there. as Dominic Cruz actually said before this fight. Yes, he did. You, you think you're hitting mitts back, backstage. You're getting warmed up. You're getting ready. And you're telling yourself, I'm ready for anything out there. 
but I there's probably no way that he puts his toe in my mouth, right, guys? Like that's that's something I probably can take off the table on yeah. my list of worries. I could be in the locker room warming up, hitting mitts, and if my coach is like, "All right, now if he if his toe gets in your mouth, just just remember that's you know, something we prepared for," and I would be like, "What? <laughs> his toe could get in Man. my mouth." Where's my phone? Call me an Uber. Yeah, they would they would turn around to grab the bucket and the towels, and when they turn back around, I'm gone. Just the door swinging just, back and forth. That's all that would be just there. Just a, a little bit of smoke in the sh- outline of Chad Dundas, who was zoomed right out the door. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. Ben, we've been big fans of NordVPN here on the CME for a long time now. We both have it. We both use it. NordVPN is a great way to keep all your personal data secure while you're surfing the web, either while you're traveling or while you're just tooling around the city and your phone is going from one public Wi-Fi to another. Ben, what would you say is your favorite thing about NordVPN? I'll tell you, I like how it kicks in to protect me on whatever Wi-Fi I might happen to log into. If I'm down there at the mall, the Southgate Mall, and their free Wi-Fi, boom, NordVPN got me covered. I'm over in the Jiffy Lube waiting room with their free Wi-Fi, boom. If I'm down there at Montana Jack's Casino, where I go for the chicken strips, that NordVPN just kicks in without me having to do anything, and I am set. I am taken care of. Yeah, just like the CME Patreon page, NordVPN has three handy tiers for its customers. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs, or you can get the plus plan if you want a little something extra. Or if you want to go all the way with it, you really want to go whole hog, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker, generate and store strong passwords, protect files, in an encrypted cloud right now cma listeners can grab their exclusive nordvpn deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main to get a huge discount off your nordvpn plan plus four months for free it's completely risk-free with nord's 30-day money-back guarantee first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our guy isaac spooner from over there on the patreon page he writes three cheers for gm3 He won't sniff a title fight, but he's always fun, and he seems like a legitimately good dude. Of course, we are talking about Gerald Mearshart here, Ben, who kicked off the main card of this UFC on ESPN event on Saturday with a third-round submission guillotine choke over Bruno Silva. He was a pretty long-shot underdog, was Gerald Mearshart coming into this thing. But I saw a lot of people liked him. A lot of people were picking him. Uh, I had a bet down on him. Uh, Did you? I thought maybe you made you take him by submission. No, I did not. But I, I, I remember thinking when you announced that you had a bet on him that oh, that's that's a little bit of a long underdog yeah. to hope for. And then he made you look smart. He made me look smart, but Devin Clark came in to to yeah smash my dreams to pieces with a giant sledgehammer. But nonetheless, I think Isaac Spooner makes a good point here. Gerald Mearshart, the thirty-four-year-old out of Wisconsin. Uh, he does actually seem like a good dude. He's 3-1 and yeah. one now in his last four fights in the UFC, the only loss to Christoph Jotko back in April of this year. But you'll recall uh, that Gerald Mearshart came into that Kamzat Chemaev fight back in September of 2020 straight, out, straight off the COVIDs. He had the COVIDs. Then he comes in there, gets absolutely waxed in 17 seconds by Kamzat Chemaev. And you know what? He's had a pretty good sense of humor about it ever since then. So I got to shout out Gerald Mearshart, man. He seems like he might be a, uh, he might be a legitimately good dude. Also not a bad saxophone player. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Man of many talents, a real Renaissance man. Yep. 
is absolutely Gerald Edward Mearshart the third. See, I didn't even have to make that up. That's that man's actual name. <laughs> I mean, that does you. You ought to be at least the, the Duke of some minor lands, you know, as Gerald Edward Mearshart the third. Yeah. Like you, you told me. He, you don't have a claim to something in, in Burgundy, you know, uh, Tuscany. You, you can't revive like some kind of ancient claim to some, claim to some lands. I feel like you probably can. Well, right now he's the uh, he's the mayor of Submission City since his last seven straight UFC wins have all been by submission. Uh, I liked I'll be honest. I like to have a guy like Gerald Mearshart around, who seems like he's a fun guy. He's probably not going to be the champion. He's going to be the underdog in a lot of these fights. But he he's tough, and he has this skill that kind of makes him a live dog in all of these fights. Because if you, if you leave the door open, if you leave the window open or crack, Gerald Mearshart is going to submit you, dog. And that's yeah, all there is to it. Does he have that in his back pocket? But he's one of the guys who is always looking for it. Because we've seen some of those guys where every once in a while you'll remember, oh shit, Donald Cerrone can submit people. So, but he's just never really thinking about it himself. I like the guy who's going out there and just being like, all right, look, I know what I am and I know what I'm not. And uh, I think you can get kind of far that way as long as you, you, you have a good sense of what your identity is as a fighter. I think he does. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Daniel Harrigan, who writes, So Nate Landwehr and David Onama were fully on some gladiator bullshit this weekend, and were we not entertained? This we were. was your featherweight co-main event fight of the night. Both guys get $50,000 bonuses. This is one of those scraps where you're like, these dudes should get more than 50000 for this yeah. shit. This should be rightly on the short list, I think, of some fight of the year lists when it's all said and done we talk a lot about how guys squeeze a whole lot of living into some of these fights david onama and nate landwehr lived multiple lives out there in front of us in the co-main event on saturday night this is one that could have been stopped on both sides a couple of times the first round of this thing when uh david onama hits nate landwehr and he goes down just absolutely stiff like a pile of bricks looking like he's just been knocked out cold you could have stopped it right there, and probably there wouldn't have been any arguments. Of course, Nate Landwehr battles back to be to get the uh, majority decision win here. Uh, this this was just an incredible fight. Nate Landwehr, like I said on the Friday Power Hour, I believe I described him as chaos, and he is. He's another one of these guys who, again, he's not going to win them all. He's probably not going to be the champion, but he's tough as nails, and the thing that he brings to the table is just turning every one of these fights when he can into a dogfight and honestly kind of making it a coin flip every time out there. And then a guy jumps on the mic just fun as hell, like a modern-day Dusty Rhodes with the, uh, with the, the uh, Tennessee <laughs> accent talking about how he's going to he'll uh, turn Hurricane Shane into a downgrade him to a tropical storm or whatever it was he said. I don't know, man. I'm digging it. I like what Nate Landwehr has going on. You can't beat a guy who's got his nickname tattooed across his shoulder, the train. Yeah. Uh, the early reports I'm hearing are that his mama didn't raise no bitch. <laughs> yes, that is also true. That's, I have not yet uh, independently confirmed that myself, but the, the strong indicators are that that is in fact true. That fight... You know, I couldn't tell if that was one where did did David Onamo wear himself out emotionally yeah. thinking that he had the finish early it's on possible. because he looked 
he looks very tired yeah. early on. And frankly, I'm kind of amazed that he made it to the final horn, especially in between the second and the third rounds. He's sitting there and he's like, uh, I can't see. I don't, they're asking him a bunch of times, do you want to keep fighting? And he's not answering. You know, and he rallied and, and did fairly well in, especially later in the that third round. So credit to him. But it seemed like maybe he saw that finish. He saw Nate Landwehr down and was like, "Here we go. This yeah. is it. Let's just get him out of here." And jumped on him. Didn't manage to finish him. And when he gets back in the fight, did he just sort of have such an emotional spike of adrenaline, thinking that he had almost won it, and that wore him out? Because it, it seemed after that, then it was just Landwehr putting the pressure and the pace on him relentlessly and never giving him a chance to get too much back into that fight. James Krause, a guy that we both, I think like a lot, have had positive things to say about him on the show uh, in the past has to basically put himself in the warm embrace of the cut man in the corner of this thing has to like duck under his arm so he can get in David Onama's face and be like, Hey man, do you want to keep fighting? Yeah. Cause he's like, it was like talking to one of my kids when they're using their tablet. Like yeah. you got to ask them about four times and then basically mm-hmm. you got to, you got to put your face right in front of their face and be like, it is time for dinner. Come eat your grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> but he did end up sending and sending David Onama back out there. And like you said, God bless him. The guy has like a second wind in the final round. Yeah. And all of a sudden we got a, we got a back and forth affair on our hands. And uh, I, if there has been a better fight this year, I can't recall it right off the top of my head. So kudos to Nate Landwehr. And David Onama, uh, a lot of underdogs cashed this weekend, and uh, Nate Landwehr, just one of them, with his majority decision win in the co-main event. Yep. Next question this week comes to us from Joel Rifkin, who writes, Somewhere in the middle of the crazy barroom brawls, some Willie Mays Hayes-style showboating, and the sadness of Dominic Cruz getting punted in the face in a fight he was winning, Nina Nunez went out and got a win and then left her gloves in the octagon. She was never a star or top contender, the B-side in the shadow of her goat wife to many of us. Uh, Goat wife is a... That sounds like some Middle Ages shit right there. That's my goat wife. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure something like that in the Canterbury Tales, right? Yeah. You know? Watch out. Don't, you know, don't have a goblin put a curse on you. You'll wind up with a goat, a goat wife. Uh, but in her post-fight speech and interview with Megan O'Levy, she really just came across as this really great human being that we sadly only really got to know at the end of the road. I'll hang up and listen as you guys speak some good about Nuna, Nina Nunez's name. Now, obviously, like I said at the top of the hill, uh, the top of the show, Ben, we're going to spend a uh, a round this week talking about Rory McDonald and his retirement. Nina Nunez, 36 years old, and had lost two in a row leading up to this one, Tatiana Suarez and Mackenzie Dern, but she comes out there and beats Cynthia Calvillo by split decision on Saturday and then walks away from the sport. And again, like we always say, these MMA retirements have to be treated with a grain of salt. Sometimes you got to put a little asterisk up there by the retirements. This one seems like it might be one that sticks for starters. And if you're Nina Nunes, one of the best timed MMA retirements of all time, exactly what you should do. You're starting to feel like you're a little bit past it. You get a win in a pretty big fight. You beat someone that clearly the uh, the UFC is pretty high on or was high on at one point, and then you walk away. That's how you do it right there. Boom. Put it in the textbook. Give it to young fighters and say, this is how you do it. This is how you walk away, just like this. Yeah, but then also do you add them, and if you could, try 
to also marry one of the all-time greats of the sport who is making really good money and so that maybe you don't have to worry about the finances quite so much. Because that'd be nice too, right? Like if you if 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 your wife is really like she pulling down some pretty good paychecks and for all we know will still be doing so as a pay-per-view point getting champion 5 years from now if she wants to. So that helps. I mean, I'm saying there's just having a little bit of a luxury there to be able to be like, okay, I, I don't have to worry about the rent if I'm not fighting. And yet, it's true that if you look at it, you step back and you go, 36 years old, been a pro fighter for nigh on 12 years, been in the UFC for like seven and a half. And you kind of know where you stand at that point. You kind of know what the career prospects look like. And so, yeah, to go out there, get a, uh, a close victory in a close fight. I also say a split decision victory, which you're going to hear more about that from me later this week. You can count on that because uh, I finally hit my bet on that one. And I, I think that you could kind of reasonably say like, you know, that the a run towards the title probably isn't in your future. You, you made it, you had a good run of it, but if you're holding out hope, like I don't want to quit yet because, you know, I haven't had that UFC gold. It's probably is probably not going to happen at that point. And so, and a good reason is like to say like, all right, they, they had their first child, uh, you know, a couple of years ago and that they, you, you want to grow the family now. And that, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me as somebody who's like saying like, as you know, Chad, you get to that point when you have one kid and you're like, we might want to have more, you know, you should have it before you get too comfortable having an older kid. Because if you have to go back, you have to go back to changing all them diapers once you've gotten way past that and, and you kind of forgot what that was like, uh, then, it, then it could be a, a jarring change. But if you add another one when you're already still kind of in that zone, maybe not such a jarring change. I, I, that's, that's all good logic to me. Does that make sense? Here's what I wonder. If you're Cynthia Calvillo, you lose a close decision in this fight. You're standing there, you're, you're bummed out, you lost a decision, and the person who just beat you was like, that's it for me, like... I, I've felt like this is as far as I can go. I'm, I'm done here with this sport. I'm going to think about doing other things with my life. Is it an extra twist of the knife? If you lose to somebody who was like, I was going to retire anyway. I mean, Cynthia Calvillo has lost four in a row. She doesn't need okay. any extra twists of the knife. I don't know that I had actually seen this uh, interview footage of Dana White that would made the rounds this weekend, essentially saying that, uh, he thought Cynthia Calvillo could be one of the greats. Had you seen this? Or he's talking about, oh, I had this feeling when I met Ronda Rousey. I had this feeling when I did so-and-so. And, you know. This feeling. Now I've got the feeling again. I feel pretty strongly about, he says, this one, meaning Cynthia Calvillo, which, uh, you know, she's not uh, she's not livestock. She's a human being. But uh, they pan over to her. And this is early in her career, I guess. But, like, I, I don't even know, though, that I knew that he had set the expectations that high and now we're out here 35 years old four losses in a row yeah man you don't need anybody kicking sand in your face when you're already down i don't know when he said he got that feeling about cynthia cavio is it before her or before or after he saw what she looked like so he's saying i think she's pretty is that what he's saying there i got this feeling i mean in this case i think she was he was saying that she's a good fighter well, it's Dana White we're talking about. And, uh, I mean, she did have a, a pretty good start to her career, though. So, like, okay, maybe I could see some of that. Uh, as far as, like, Nina Nunes, you know, I remember when, before it was, they, they were publicly out about their relationship. 
Uh, I remember having dinner with uh, Amanda Nunes and Nina uh, when I was in Florida to do a story on uh, American Top Team. And their manager at the time, Charles McCarthy, former UFC fighter, Charles McCarthy, who was managing them both. And he kind of arranged like, hey, let's all go out to dinner and then maybe you can do a story on them. And afterwards, and I was kind of like, okay, well, here's, I think the story about you guys and like your relationship and how you met in a fight gym and uh, now like are both fighters uh, supporting each other and, and doing all that. I think that that's an interesting story. And they were both like, Mm, we don't really want to do that story. Like for one thing that like, we're not ready to to tell people that, that we're doing this, uh, this relationship yet, but also, uh, and for Nina, she was kind of like, Amanda is the, the more well-known fighter at, at this point. And this was before Amanda was champion too. Uh, but she was like, if we tell people about this, I feel like I will just be known to MMA fans as Amanda's girlfriend. And I don't want that. Like I, if, if they get to know me, I want them to know me as you know, Nina as the fighter that I am. And I was like, honestly, that's totally understandable. And I could see that that'd be one of the tough parts about, uh, you know, being in a relationship with the goat of having a goat wife upside. Mm, pretty good pay-per-view champion paychecks. So that ain't bad either. Next question. This week comes to us from Scott. He writes, I always enjoy when the UFC is in California because they have to disclose payouts in that state. So looking at that data, we can see that Marlon Vera made $300,000 and Dominic Cruz made $175,000. If only they made as much as Pedro Campa, who made $400,000. Wait, who is Pedro Campa, the CME listeners might ask? Why, he's the cream puff boxer the top rank set up to fight Teodoro Lopez on Saturday, who got knocked Teofimo out. Teofimo Lopez, yeah. What? Go ahead. We're, just where I, I actually ended up writing a preview about this one, Teofimo Lopez, uh, who it says, took on it Pedro Campa here. Teodoro in this yeah. in this email. You're saying you're telling me that's not right? That's what I'm telling you. Okay. Boxing, the broken sport, as Dana White calls it, can find the cash to pay some guy to come up from Mexico to be a stepping stone to rehab a boxer's career and pay him even more than the highest earner on the UFC card. Oh, also, it shows here that David Onama had a super violent, crazy co-main event and earned himself a whopping twenty-four grand pre-tax. Couple more of those fights this year, and David will earn as much as a ship supervisor at Staples, writes Scott. <laughs> okay, the, this is a fair point too, especially because I mean, he might be being a little bit hard on on Campa here, but he was chosen as let's get this guy. Uh, you know. Lopez is going to go up to a new weight class after losing his first pro fight back in November. Going to go up to a new weight class, and we want him to beat somebody. We want we want a pretty like solid pick for a guy he can he can beat and finish. And you know they went into the the seventh or eighth round, I believe, uh, before Lopez finally put him away. And it wasn't like like Camp was uh, like he's a tough guy, you could tell. But is also his first fight outside of Mexico, his first fight against somebody that most people had heard of. They clearly chosen for that reason. Uh, and so they probably, they maybe didn't have to give him like a huge payday to get somebody in there in that fight. And he was, he came in, I mean, I think Lopez is like a minus 3,000 favorite on some of the cards. So uh, everybody kind of knew what this was, and yet he still got paid pretty well out of it. The argument has always been against this structure. That, okay, sure, if you look at the guys at the top of a boxing card, their money looks pretty good. But if you look at the guys way down, theirs looks worse than the guys way down on the UFC card. Like, the UFC has basically established a kind of minimum that is usually higher with somebody than somebody on the undercard of a boxing 
event might make. And there's something to that. Like the UFC is the, the, the minimums are higher in the UFC than they are in boxing. But the difference is that the maximums are way lower than what they are. And just the, the percentage that pr- the promoter is keeping is so much greater than it is for most boxing promoters. And that's when Dana White said that thing about like, oh, boxing is just so, the, the, the money in boxing is it's so broken, that, that sport. And it's like, it's not, like, it's honestly thriving right now. Boxing is doing pretty damn well overall. And all these fighters, their dream, it seems, is to do this UFC stuff enough for people to know who they are and pay attention to them and maybe make that jump to boxing and get one huge payday. And like that tells you something that when he's saying it's broken and I tried to get in, I couldn't figure out how to, these guys are so corrupt. I couldn't figure out how to, how to work this sport and I must be crazy to want to deal with them. What he means is I couldn't figure out a way to get an 80, 20 split in my favor in this sport. That's what he means. Yeah. Like the boxing guys are doing okay. Yeah. And honestly, all the talk of like what boxers get paid and what main event UFC fighters get paid and whether or not the undercard fighters get paid more or less than the undercard fighters in boxing is all with smokescreen. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that the UFC has a billion dollars in revenue every year now. Last couple of years, a billion dollars in revenue. And we are left to believe 55% profit margins. And that number is not going to go down. It's only going to go up as uh, television rights become available again and and all of these numbers continue to grow go up and historically speaking the ufc has paid its fighters between 15 and 20 percent of revenue so any and all talk about anything else is just noise you could double the entire payroll of the ufc and only get to 40 percent of revenue so it may not actually work out this way but just as a rule of thumb Every single person in the UFC, including Conor McGregor, including Marlon Vera, including Dominic Cruz, could all make twice as much. And it still would not get overall fighter payroll to 50%. That's that's all that matters. That's the only thing. The only question you ever need to ask, how much money is there? What's the split? Next question this week comes to us from Nick Cohen over on Patreon. He says, is it just me? Is it just me or were DC and Bisping especially salty with each other on Saturday's fight night? <laughs> I did not notice this. Did you notice this? Were they were they well, saltier than usual? I mean, there, there were times when they were, but there were also times when they were sort of, uh, you know, yucking it up and doing their thing. They had a couple moments, but it's always tough to tell, especially with those two, if it's actually saltier, if it's just a couple of bros busting each other's chops because they are both the bust your chops kind of guy with uh, with everybody and so that might just be how they express friendship i did the one part that stuck out to me on the prelims was when they're talking about ground and pound and bisping sort of like tongue-in-cheek praising his own ground and pound when he was a fighter and dc just automatically like a reflex like like a doctor banged his knee with a little hammer just shot back your ground and pound was trash bro <laughs> I mean, but Bisping uh, laughed along with him. But you know, they had a couple of moments going back and forth disagreement. I don't, maybe what if seeing colleague Dom Cruz on the the docket that evening? Maybe they were just more tense than usual. Yeah, you know, yeah. that one of them was in there and had it all on the line later that evening, and so maybe that that just got everybody's blood up a little bit. Could have been. Could have been. In any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, 
You know how to do it. Go to the website, comaineventcom and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Thanks to everybody who wrote in emails this week. We had a healthy crop of listener mail this week, uh, which in the wake of some of these fight night events is not always the case. Sometimes it seems like these fight nights don't make that big of a dent among the... Uh, the letter writing public, I guess you would say, but this one, for whatever reason, maybe it was Dominic Cruz, maybe it was Marlon Vera, maybe it was all of the kind of back and forth fights that we had. For whatever reason, this uh, this spurned a lot of letters, spawned a lot of letters. So that that was good for us. Uh, so thanks to everybody who wrote in. We got as many of them on the show as we could. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, this was one of those fights where Dominic Cruz was doing pretty good. He was out there doing his Dominic Cruz thing, doing his crazy footwork, sticking and moving, getting in on some takedowns. Uh, Looked like he had Marlon Vera confused at times. He was landing some good strikes. But there were multiple occasions in this fight where when Chito Vera would land one, you could tell that it hurt a lot more than the ones Dominic Cruz was landing And of course, we get to the fourth round. I don't know if I have not seen the official scorecards. I would imagine Dominic Cruz was probably ahead on at least one or two of them. Uh, And then he goes two minutes in, gets kicked right in his face, gets knocked unconscious, nose broken. Marlon Vera is your winner. We as we talked about on Friday, this seemed like an important one. Uh, both in terms of being a bantamweight contender fight for both guys, but also for Dominic Cruz, just to go out there and prove, hey, man, I'm still really good. I can still be a top contender in this division. I should be the sh- on the short list for guys who are going to get title shots, you know, coming up here relatively soon. Uh, and it's hard to know what to take away from it, I guess, because like I said, he was looking pretty good for, you know, 20 minutes or so, but there were just were times where Marlon Vera proved that he had a huge power advantage and then he capitalized on a a mistake that Cruz kind of continually kept making in this fight ducking to one side when he was slipping punches and uh Vera kicked him right in his face what do you take away just in terms of Dominic Cruz from how this thing ended yeah you know it's tough because like you said Dominic Cruz was getting to do a lot of his stuff early on in this fight and yet one of the things that seemed to me to make a big difference is that the the success of Dominic Cruz's style when he was at his peak, which again, is like 10 years ago. So it's credit to him for still being around and still being competitive against some of these top guys in the division. But it was the ability to be kind of constantly in and out, coming at you at weird angles and then disappearing before you could fire back. And it was also the ability to mix in the takedowns in a way where it was really hard to see him coming. Like he was like a really good pitcher can make his arm and release look exactly the same, whether he's throwing, you know, his fastball or his changeup. And Dominic Cruz was really good at that, especially because he would throw that lead right sometimes, but then sometimes it would look exactly like when he's getting ready to throw that lead right, and he'd go for that knee tap takedown he used to love so much. And he could make it look to you exactly the same. And once you've been popped in the face by the lead right a few times, that's the one you're going to worry about, and it opened up the takedowns, and then the takedowns in turn opened up the striking game. And here was one where he was 
not quite quick enough getting out. And so he was taking some of those punches. And it's clearly that was part of Marlon Vera's approach in this fight was don't go looking for this guy too much and giving him openings. But when he comes into you, tag him before he can get all the way out there. And it's that was clearly successful for him. But it was also mostly shutting down the takedowns. You know, like Dominic Cruz would get some, but also would end up getting stalled on some of them. And when you have that ability where you don't have to worry so much about that part, you can focus a little more on dealing with his striking game. But it was also just a little bit of a difference in speed in that before Dominic Cruz could do his vanishing act at the end of some of those combos, he'd take a jab, he'd take a counter hook or something, and every single one that landed seemed like it hurt. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, I'm I'm landing three, you get one before I can get out of there, but it's fine because he was just, he got tagged with jabs at some points in this fight and looking like he was hurt from it. And that really made a bunch of the difference. Also making the difference, it seemed like Marlon Vera had that, that part of his style scouted pretty well. He talked about afterwards that he and his coach seeing that Dominic Cruz will dip off to that side. And when he does dip off to that side, and you could see him doing it earlier in the fight and doing it at times when he was just, just to get out of a clinch situation he didn't want to be in. Even uh, doing it, reacting to feints, basically, and do it, doing it. And when he would dip off in that direction, you know, he's leaning his head so far away that his feet aren't under him. So it's not like he has a, a ton of ability to adjust if he sees something coming at that point. And when he does get hit, there's nowhere really for him to go. He has to end up absorbing the full blow. And Marlon Vera seemed like they, they had that. They knew that was going to be something that they could count on. And his coach telling him, like, wait for him to try to move out of the way from you. And then if you keep throwing, you're going to find him. And he did. Yeah. Uh, how about Eric Nixick kind of calling this shot on the social medias, right? Before it happened saying, uh, Cruz keeps ducking off to that one side, you know, what would be great. <laughs> A high kick over there. And then, uh, that's, that's what ends up happening. So, cool. well, and I was amazed too. Marlon Vera said afterwards that his coach, in scouting it, had just sent him a still image from one of Cruz's fights where he was doing that in response to a blow. And he said he didn't even say anything. Just sent him the picture. Didn't even say, hey, I think this is something we could exploit. Or he just sent him the picture. And he was like, I knew what he was thinking. I knew why he sent that to me, why he wanted me to see that moment. And I was just like, got you. I got you, bro. Yeah. Now that's good coaching right there. Don't even have to say anything. Don't even have to do a coach. What do you got? Don't even have to do a put your hands on him. Just send a picture jpeg boom where's my 10 percent? you know as as well as dominic cruz was doing at 37 years old even before the knockout i did get the impression of diminishing returns on that style yeah. of his and we talked last week about how that would be a style that didn't seem like it would age that well a style that that depends on quickness and mobility and motion and might not you know, be the kind of thing you could lean on as you get into your late thirties and Dominic Cruz at this point, 37 years old. Uh, yeah, I, I want Marlon Vera to come out later and say it was very low level. that Dominic Cruz's approach is a very low level style in MMA. I was just like, kind of like, eh, come on, man. Like it kind of seemed like at times it was giving you some problems. Uh, so I don't know that I would say it was very low level at the, at the same time, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit conflicted whether or not to say, you know, Dominic Cruz has gotten older or that the bantamweight competition has gotten better or if it's a mixture of both that kind of make this this style that he pioneered a little bit less effective. But to me, it's, I, even as he was doing well and I was watching it, it just seemed like maybe it wasn't what it used to be. Yeah, uh, and I wondered that too. It was just like, is 
is he just a little bit slower in in some of these attacks? Because there were moments where he looked good, where he was putting it together like he used to, mixing up the attacks, where he's hitting you with calf kicks and then he's punching you upside the head in almost the same exact instant. And I wondered, is he taking the punches not quite as well these days? Because we, one little shot has to make him back up or gets dropped or something. Um, or is Marlon Vera just dealing with it well? Because you're right, at some points, it did seem like Marlon Vera was sort of struggling to find an answer to it. Uh, but having the equalizer of he can hit me three times and I'm really I'm not worried about him doing much damage and I can hit him once and the next thing you know he's on wobbly legs, that's a nice advantage to have in a fight. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, I guess, Chito Vera, they talked about it on the broadcast that this game that he plays is a little bit dangerous and that he's kind of a slow starter. He has the tendency to let guys get out to a little bit of a lead on him. But he does have that power that at times can make up for it. And clearly that's what happened in this fight. He's got a four-fight win streak now. The last three over Frankie Edgar, Rob Font, and now Dominic Cruz, which is a pretty good stretch. Uh, he is officially ranked number five in the men's bantamweight division. We think it's going to be Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw, perhaps, for the 135-pound uh, title. Of course, Peter Yawn is going to fight Sean O'Malley. Uh, Marlon Vera has already lost to Jose Aldo once. Aldo has a fight coming up uh, next week at UFC 278, which we will talk about coming up in round number three. What do you forecast here as the future for Marlon Vera? Like, clearly, if he gets a hold of you with a punch, I think he could probably beat almost anyone in this division. But the 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 slow starting and the fact that maybe he has a tendency to get down on points, some of that stuff is troubling just in terms of how well he will fare you know, as he moves on to the the elite of the elite, I guess you could say. I mean, that you're you're not wrong that it's troubling, but that to me seems fixable. Yeah, you know that that's something that you can address. Uh, I I guess I wouldn't worry about too much, especially since he seems to be doing well and he seems to be fighting with a ton of confidence. And like we said beforehand. We were like, hey, what would it mean for him to beat uh, this version of Dominic Cruz at this time? And I think we both said it'd be significant. It'd be a big win. Yeah. And to go out there, kick him in his face, knock him out, that's big. That's a big one. That's the one where now you, you everybody uh, at Bantamweight has to take Marlon Vera seriously because that, that's a guy who's in the conversation. All right, let's go ahead and we will do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two this week. Ben... Uh, BJ Penn will not be the next governor of the great state of Hawaii. The Republican primary was held on Saturday over there in Hawaii. BJ Penn got 22.2% of the vote, finishing well behind two-time Republican Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona, who won the primary with 47.5% of the vote. Iona will now go on to face the current Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, the Democrat, in the general election on November 8th. I guess this week, 22.2% uh, of the people voted for BJ Penn. Are you fucking kidding me? How did we even get that high? Uh, maybe that's the answer. Wow. You know okay. what I'm saying? You're I'm saying we just 20... found out what percentage of the Republican voter base in Hawaii is high at any given moment? I'm saying, like, you're for, at first blush, okay, BJ Penn got his ass kicked, right? Not even close. 47% to 22%. That's my first reaction. My second reaction is to squint a little bit more at these numbers and to be like, 22% of the people voted for BJ Penn? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, 
why why what would you how would you even what would be your 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 motivation to vote for bj penn especially after you know how how this quote unquote campaign has unfolded you fucking kidding me fucking kidding me 22.2 percent is frankly much better than i thought we would do well, just to piggyback off your, are you fucking kidding me? My, are you fucking kidding me? Is that in the wake of receiving that twenty-two percent of the vote, BJ Penn's first reaction, at least on Instagram, was, "It's not over. We are not conceding." <laughs> so you want to know what seems a little more ridiculous than twenty-two percent of the people in the primary voting for BJ Penn? BJ Penn hearing that number and being like, mm, "I don't know though. This one, this one could still go my way." Yeah. You fucking kidding me? Fucking I think kidding maybe me? in this it, it, since then he may have uh, begun to accept the reality a little more. But uh, are you fucking kidding me? We also cannot just descend into this as the norm in American politics, where everybody who loses a race is like, mm, even though I got clearly trounced. Um, I don't know. I don't believe it, bro. Yeah, I just are need another twenty-five percent of the vote, and I'll be right there, neck and neck. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, at age 33, Rory Joseph McDonald... known to some as the Red King, formerly known as the Waterboy, has decided that that's it. That's a wrap on his MMA career. You know, you you hear that this guy is 33. You might think, well, how long could he have possibly been fighting for? Long-ass time, bro. Long-ass time. One of these guys who started out quite young in the sport, made his pro debut in 2005, uh, for a while one of uh, the, the Canadian fighters that they were very excited about in the UFC. After... This last week's loss in the PFL suffered a DKO loss. TKO there in uh, the, th- the first round, kind of ending his his PFL hopes for good there in the welterweight semifinals. And now he's decided to hang it up. It feels like the right time for Rory McDonald. And I also wonder what if we are to step back and look at the full picture here and to believe that this is it on his career and that he will not do the usual MMA fighter thing of making a comeback. What do you make of the career that Rory McDonald's had? I mean, it's a it's a really good career, right? The, the right before that Robbie Lawler fight at UFC 189, uh, he was 18 and two up to that point. And you know, maybe those two meetings with Robbie Lawler, one in 2013, one in 2015, uh, changed the career a little bit for Rory McDonald just because of the sheer physical toll that those fights took on his body. But I think, like, you know, all things considered, it is a very good MMA career. Things kind of went downhill after that second Robbie Lawler fight, but that's that happens to almost everybody before they walk away. And if anything, man, maybe we just heaped unfair expectations on the kid at a very, very young age when everyone, I think, up to and including George St. Pierre, were kind of like, this is the next guy. This is the guy who will carry the mantle of Canadian MMA after George St. Pierre is gone back at a time when Canadian MMA was very important really, really important, not only to the sport at large, but sort of to the UFC's bottom line. Uh, so in retrospect, I don't know if that was fair to do to Rory McDonald, but 
you also, I don't necessarily know if you can blame anyone for it just because of how good he was at such a young age and how everyone was kind of scrambling around looking for the next Canadian superstar in the UFC back in those days. And Rory McDonald at the time certainly seemed to fit the bill. Yeah, and I also remember that Roy McDonald came along and we all said, this is sort of what we've been waiting for, is a generation of fighters who learned not one discipline that they then had to round out their skill set with when they wanted to be pro, but learned MMA. That, that came up and that was what their education consisted of in the martial arts, was this sport, essentially. And here was a guy who... You know, was uh, a good striker on the feet, had a little bit of wrestling, uh, and seemed like there were no glaring weaknesses. There was not a guy who where we were used to before, mainly a wrestler, learned how to box a little bit. You know, mainly a striker, learned some takedown defense. And we thought this is what's what it's all going to be going forward, is this guy is a sign of what's to come in MMA. That, that Robbie Lawler fight, though, that one really seems like a major turning point. And yeah. it's a reminder to me. I mean, I was I was in the building for that one. I'll never forget it. It was just such a an, an awesome but a brutal fight. Especially, I'll never forget the moment right after that fight ended, where you know both of them had had their whole shit smashed open at that point. You know, his his nose was so badly damaged. He had, that Robbie Lawler had that huge cut uh, in his lip, and we're both just going at it. And it was like he finally just hit that nose one too many times, and Rory McDonald. Uh, couldn't stand it anymore. And, and just the, the exhaustion, the punishment, everything finally caught up to him. And you could see him, you know, Robbie Lawler's off celebrating after he goes down and the doctor ru- rushes in to try to attend to him. And she manages to just sort of like stick some gauze into the bloody mess of his nose right there in the center of his face. And then he sort of just like falls back and the gauze is still stuck to him. And you could tell that he just couldn't, she was trying to talk to him and, and deal with him and he he just he could not compute at that yeah. point, and you got man that's that was an amazing fight, an amazing show for us, but at what cost to him? And you saw it going forward after that. That you know it seemed like maybe he was never entirely the same after that. That nose was a persistent problem for him afterwards, where it was just it didn't take much for it to start gushing blood, and it's a reminder that especially when we talk about fighter pay stuff and people look at the payouts, you know, and people look at something like Dominic Cruz and be like, Oh, 175 grand for one night's work. Like I'd take that. And it's like, but you don't know anytime you get in there could be the time you suffer injuries that plague you the rest of your career or you're never quite the same after that fight. Especially we get these great moments out of it, but they carry a cost with them going forward. Yeah. And it clearly seemed like that was one where Rory McDonald carried that cost. Like he, he left something in there that night yeah. and, and you know, probably so did Robbie Lawler. Yeah. The nose was a big problem for a long time. And honestly, we don't know. It might still be, but he had to have what, uh, at least one surgery, maybe a couple of surgeries to finally get it all uh, sorted out. And like I said before, he was 18 and two before that fight with Robbie Lawler five, eight and one after it. So like a real clear, mark of delineation on Rory McDonald's career just in terms of uh, wins and losses, if nothing else. Uh, You know, would we say he's one of these guys that like kind of got caught up in sort of like the sometimes very pervasive notion that like to be a warrior in this sport, what you ought to do is go out and have these fights to like have these 
you know, absolute wars with people like Robert, Robbie Lawler for bonus money and, uh, you know, fan appreciation and all this stuff. And then, and, and if anything, like he stands as a testament to like, man, you can only do that so many times. And the, 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 the stakes and the effects of those things for these guys are really real. Like you can have one fight like that with Robbie Lawler and kind of never be the same again. Yeah, but he never seemed to me like somebody who was fighting recklessly in search of bonus money or in search of that attaboy from fans as a just bleed kind of guy. He was always a smart and and tactical fighter. Especially, you know, that one that he had right after the the Robbie Lawler one. Uh, And by right after, I mean like a a year later because he was so fucked up from the Robbie Lawler fight. But he fought Wonder Boy. And that was one where it was like, okay, there's two guys who know their way around a game plan and know what they want to do, trying to impose their will in a fight. And he lost the decision in that one. But it was clearly like, you know, he wasn't going out there and just swinging and banging. He was always a guy who was uh, trying to, to to be smart about it. But even then, you know, you 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 get to that level of the sport and you're going to be in some battles one way or another. And when those times came, you know, he he heard that music and he was going to dance. Like he wasn't backing away from that kind of stuff. Like him and Robbie Lawler standing there, like both of them essentially exhaling blood on one another and not wanting to go to their corners after at the end of a round. Like that showed you like that guy has that in him too, but he was also a smart fighter. Uh, and, and I don't know if he ever necessarily got caught up in any of that stuff, but it did seem like when he went to Bellator and then to PFL, you thought like, okay, is this more of a, a cash in phase of his career? Like did he build up that name? Now he's going to go over there and you know, it didn't really happen for him that way. It, like, it, I don't know if it's because the competition was over there was better than people gave it credit for, or that he had already given up too much in some of those battles early in his career. I don't know. Yeah. He leaves the UFC on the heels of back-to-back losses, Robbie Lawler, and then Steven Thompson goes to Bellator, uh, where things weren't terrible, right? He, he, uh, uh, he does end up winning the Bellator welterweight title, but he also goes, I think it's three, one and one or no three, two and one in Bellator. Uh, losses to Gegard Mousasi and Douglas Lima and a, gra- a draw against John Fitch in April of 2019. And then departs for the PFL after that loss to Lima, where things kind of do, in some ways, go off the rails for Rory McDonald. A loss to Gleason Tebow, a loss to Ray Cooper the third, uh, and then back-to-back losses to guys who don't have Wikipedia pages. The most recent to this late replacement, Delano Taylor, uh, on Saturday in the PFL. So, like I said, it seems like, you know, if anything, maybe Rory McDonald is walking away at the right time. And he seems like one of these dudes, like definitely smart enough to go do something else or coach or, or, uh, you know, be a, uh, you know, Rory McDonald seems like he could just go be a really good traditional martial arts coach. Like he yeah. might be out there teaching kids karate and be totally fine with that. So I hope that he, uh, I hope that he finds something. I hope that he, he can do something constructive and also sort of like build a future life for himself because he is like all these people relatively young in terms of his actual physical life yeah and i hope he can breathe through that nose that is going to do it for round number two we'll be right back with round number three We'll 
Ben, we have already mentioned multiple times how weird it is that UFC 278, with its main event welterweight title fight of Kamaru Usman defending the belt against Leon Edwards, is that it's going down in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> Just kind of an odd place to have this this fighting event. But nonetheless, that's what we're doing Saturday night at the Vivint Center? Vivint Arena? Vivint Arena? I don't even know how to say it. Down there in Salt Lake City. You got Usman. Granddaddy of them all. You got Usman versus Edwards. Co-main event, Paulo Costa and Luke uh, Rockhold. Uh, Jose Aldo and Marab Deshvili in a bantamweight fight. Deshvili, yep. Uh, Marcin Tybura and Alexander Romanov. Tyson Pedro and Harry Hunsucker is your main card. So a little bit of a low profile, perhaps UFC pay-per-view event, although those top three fights are all fairly interesting and going to be probably worth the price of admission, I would guess. For Leon Edwards, as I said at the top of the show, uh, he has been waiting a long time to get this shot. He is riding a nine-fight win streak. His last loss was, in fact, to Kamaru Usman when they fought back on UFC on Fox Dos Anjos versus Cowboy 2. Wow. In December of 2015. Since then, it's been nothing but wins in that one no contest against Bilal Muhammad in March of last year. So a long time coming for Leon Edwards. On the other side of the coin, Kamaru Usman uh, going for what I believe is his sixth successful defense of the welterweight title. Coming in off his most recent victory over Colby Covington at UFC 268. Uh, and he hasn't lost since his second professional fight back in 2013. So somebody is going to have a lengthy losing streak or winning streak broken in this one. I guess just to open it up, do you think uh, Leon Edwards makes it any different this time than his first fight with Kamaru Usman? It's been a long time. You're probably dealing with two pretty different fighters at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. I also think if Kamaru Usman is at his very best, that guy's tough to beat, man. That guy is just fucking good. And especially, I know we're going to talk about you know both of them being different since that that first fight. But Kamara Usman is a more dangerous man now than he was then. Back then he was sort of the relentless wrestler guy. Now he can do that, but he can also hurt you on the feet. He can hurt you with a jab, and that was not the case back when they fought the first time. That was nobody was sitting around in 2015 being like, "But Kamara Usman's jab, though, watch out." And it is now. The thing I wonder about is he's had a lot of trouble with that hand. And it's delayed his return. We've heard a lot about it. I do wonder a little bit about what, it, it, how close to 100% he's going to be in this fight. And if he has the full confidence that he needs to throw it all the time. Because we've heard fighters talk, especially about hand stuff. That when they come back after dealing with that, it can be tough just to throw it and have the faith in it and not worry about it. And when you're at this level, uh, taking on all these challengers who have been gunning at you now for a little while, you can't afford too much of a drop off. You know, uh, those guys, somebody's going to find out one of those nights if you come in there and you don't believe all the way or you're not all the way ready for it. Uh, so I still think Kamar Usman is is you know the the smart pick. He, he it's probably his fight to lose. But uh, Leon Edwards could absolutely come in here and and fuck all that up just by being a, a good all-around solid fighter. And he also has to know that if he doesn't win the title here, 
man, it took this long to get a shot. It, you can f- kind of forget about getting another one if you lose this. Yeah, for a long time, it seemed like Leon Edwards just could not catch a break. There were so many times when it was said that he was going to be next, and then it just didn't materialize. And then most recently, he gets that fight against Bilal Muhammad that ends in an accidental eye poke. And then he goes out there against Nate Diaz and absolutely damn near pitches a shutout, just dominates the guy. But Nate Diaz like slaps him in the face once near the end of the fight. And like a lot of people acted like Nate Diaz won the fight. So I, you know, athletes are really good at handling psychological situations like this high level athletes are, but it must just feel weird for Leon Edwards to wait this long, have so many wins, have so many things go wrong, so many promises broken, and now be like, well, this is it. Now I'm supposed to get the shot. Salt Lake City, of all places, Saturday night, UFC 278. If it was me, I'd probably I'd be looking over my shoulder a little bit, just like, oh, well, what's going to go wrong now? What's going to go wrong for old Leon Edwards now as I, as I vie for the 170-pound title, but I'm sure that's not how he's thinking of it. But it is just like a very, it to me, seems like it would be a, a psychologically difficult and an emotionally charged situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess let's try to imagine for a second a Leon Edwards victory in this fight. Let's say I told you, I came back from the future, just briefly, I'm out of breath. I'm not chat. Leon Edwards is a new UFC welterweight champion. That's it. I got to go. The robots. And then I disappear. And you have to try to piece together then. How did he get it done? What do you think? How does Leon Edwards have a chance to get this done here? Well, he's going off at plus 290. So almost a three to one underdog. So it should be noted yeah. that odds makers don't really like his chances in this fight. Uh, but it would have to be on the feet, right? Like it would have to be, he would have to uh, rock Kamara Usman with a punch and like finish him with strikes. I would think, isn't that Leon Edwards's real shot here? Like whether it be a punch or a kick or some kind of striking thing. I don't necessarily know that I see like a, a ground based strategy for Leon Edwards. That seems like it it would be victorious. Do you see a, a world in which Leon Edwards just wins three or more of the rounds? Yeah, that, that he can beat him by decision and just just edge him out that way. I mean, that's possible. Like I said, the odds say that's not going to happen. And I think Kamara Usman has the better rounded game, right? So Kamara Usman is always going to have some different things he could potentially do to win those rounds or shut down a round if Leon Edwards is is starting to get out to a lead or something like that. Uh, Usman is always going to have the the wrestling ability. He's always going to be able to control, I think, the action that way. But, like, man, if you told me that – I think that these guys are both really good. And, like, uh, I guess I'm not surprised by the odds that Leon Edwards is a 3-1 to underdog. But it seems maybe a little closer than that to me. And so, like, if you told me that they just got into one of those very close dog fights that – you know, we, it seems like we more often see them at lighter weight classes, but if it was just sort of like a, these two guys are trading punches for five rounds kind of a thing, and it's going to be a split decision, I guess I could believe that, and it could go Leon Edwards' way. But again, like I said, uh, when you're a three-to-one underdog, the guys who allegedly know the most about it are thinking you don't necessarily have a great shot. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and we will uh, look at a couple of the other fights on this card. As I, uh, as I said earlier, Luke Rockhold returns, Ben Folks, to middleweight, Paulo Costa, Snacks Costa, and Luke Rockhold. Just a dreamy matchup, if nothing else. Uh, <laughs> Costa's on the internet this week showing off a, a lean physique, looking yeah. like he's going to roll in and make the weight 
and then go mm-hmm. out there and fight Luke Rockhold. Uh, this is a this is a a strange matchup and one where uh, I couldn't tell you what exactly is going to happen. I mean, he has. I've I seen the pictures he's been posting on the social media. And he is on some "Call Me Snacks Now" motherfucker kind of stuff out there with his abs all out, all yeah. out and glistening and whatnot in the in the pictures. Uh, you know, I would say that I like Costa's chances here. You want to talk about some odds? He's rolling in here as a near three to one favorite against Luke Rockhold in this. This feels like everybody's just looking at it and being like, oh, well, here, what you're selling me here is a chance to see Luke Rockhold get knocked out. And you know what? Yes, I will. That's a good sales pitch. Doesn't that seem like that's what the UFC is sort of promising us here? It's been a while since we saw him, right? Hasn't fought since 2019. Yanni Blackjacks, UFC 239, finished it out on back-to-back losses, the one to Yoel Romero at UFC 221, and then uh, Jan Blahovich. But, uh, you know, sometimes I think we underestimate how good Luke Rockhold was at times, yeah. especially at this weight. He's big, he's mobile, he's got those kicks. The question is, can he come in at this age and this layoff and do it against a guy in Paulo Costa who has also been very, very good? And again, just going by the odds over here on the DraftKings Sportsbook, Luke Rockhold, a plus 240 uh, underdog. So again, odds makers don't necessarily like his chances that much well yeah i mean you're right that he is big mobile uh rangy guy for the weight class and and can do a lot of different stuff he's also i believe 37 years old and has been knocked out in three of his last four and you go in here against paulo costa a guy whose whole thing is just getting close to you and throwing those hammers that seems like probably a bad night for luke rockhold but you know what? Hey, if you prove us all wrong and you turn around, then maybe suddenly we're talking about the rebirth of Luke Rockhold in the UFC. Yeah. Uh, hard, hard, kind of hard to imagine, I think. But yep. Uh, yep. we will see what happens. I suppose the closest one of all three of these is Jose Aldo plus 105 uh, against Marab Duval. Say it for me. Davashvili. Davashvili. All right. Uh, he's minus 125. And uh, I guess you could be looking at a potential rematch for Marlon Vera with Jose Aldo or a, a, a fresh matchup for him. If you think that's how it's going to go, if, if Davashvili wins. So that's going to be an interesting bantamweight fight. Jose Aldo has been pretty good here in the sort of yes. career resurgence three in a row. He's got the win over Chito. He's got Pedro Munoz and Rob font all right in a row. Yeah. I mean the, his ability to go to a new weight class at that point in his career and uh, revive uh, his his hopes has been kind of amazing. And honestly, the way it it almost never goes. Usually you see somebody like a formerly great champion be like, guess what, I'm going to cut even more weight and go down there. And we go, oh God, it's only nightmares ahead. And he has actually somehow managed to be really, really impressive down there. But this is a tough fight yeah. for Joe Salah. I mean, it's a tough fight for both of them. But Rob comes in here on a long-ass winning streak and has just been uh, a constant motor in there. Even in fights where he gets hurt early on and he's just going to come roaring back on you. And the guy is just always, always moving. He seems like exactly the kind of fighter that could take down and overwhelm and just wear out Jose Aldo. Um, I mean, it's still... I I could absolutely see uh, how Aldo manages to prove us wrong again and, and, and find another way to win this fight. But this was a tough one. Yeah. And this, honestly, as far as just like 
the the tough one to call and the my excitement level to see how it actually plays out. This, this is kind of the people's main event on this one for me. Yeah, I I agree. It'll be fun to fun to watch this one and uh, Saturday night Salt Lake City UFC 278. We'll see what what occurs and break down all the stuff that happens a week from today. Let's go ahead and do just saying stuff and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, we were talking about Nate Landwehr, who, again, sources indicate his mama did not raise no bitch. He was on uh, the MMA Fortnite today talking to Ariel Hawani, and Ariel asked him about the, the nickname The Train, which, as you noted, he has tattooed right there on his shoulder pectoral region. I asked him, you know, where'd the nickname come from? He was like, you know, that's just because I'm, uh, I'm like a train. I always go forward. I don't go backwards. And I guess I'm just saying, Nate, Trains do sometimes go backwards. I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be fact-checking people's nicknames. But I got to tell you, if you've ever been on a long train journey, one of the most frustrating parts is when the train occasionally has to move backwards. You feel like all your progress is undone. I'm just saying, if, if we're going to be drawing that metaphor, it might be something that you want to think about moving forward or backward. Just saying. Wow. I'm just saying. Trains they do, do sometimes move backwards. Move backwards is the... Uh... To just saying stuff for Ben folks this week. That's incredible. Uh, well, Ben, as we mentioned earlier in the show, this uh, Marlon Vera Dominic Cruz fight was held down there in California. So we got to see the official payouts for the guys. The other thing that California does that I like is that they release everybody's uh, fight night weights. So we get to yeah. see how much weight everybody put back on between the weigh-in and the time that they actually get in the cage on Saturday night. I saw this tweet from Mark Raimondi from ESPN. Dominic Cruz weighed 154 pounds Saturday for UFC San Diego, gaining back 14% of his body weight from Friday's weigh-in per the California State Athletic Commission. Marlon Vera was 151.8, gaining back 12% of his body weight. So... Just another instance where we encourage a couple of dudes to cut upwards of 20 pounds to get Mm -hmm. down to the quote-unquote bantamweight division, maybe starve themselves, maybe dehydrate themselves, maybe sit in a sauna for a while, put on some garbage bags and run on the treadmill for all we know. Do a lot of shit that's really bad for your body so you can hit that 135. Then we're all going to rehydrate up to our natural weight so we can all still be within two pounds of each other when we get in the cage on fight night. It's a lightweight fight, Ben. One guy, 151, yeah. the other guy, 154. We're both in the lightweight division, two, two pounds away from each other here. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? It seems completely un- unnecessary. It seems like absolute madness to make these make these guys do this when we're all more often than not probably going to still be in the same damn weight class when it's all said and done. I'm just saying. Just saying. Any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks to everybody who listened. We'll be back on the Patreon page all week with the Wednesday live chat, Thursdays doing the damn thing, and the Friday power hour. Check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. One dollar will get you in the door if you just want to check out the live chat. That's all it costs, one dollar. Just screaming deal. Maybe the best deal in all sports, some are saying. Many are saying. Yeah. As for right now, though, thanks, everybody, for listening. We're done. We're through. We're out. 
You know what I would like is I, I would like a dedicated UFC camera to follow around all the fighters and coaches and managers post-fight as they're all at like the hotel bar or whatever, figuring out that you can only get the weak ass beers in Salt Lake City. Yeah, that's what I want. Some, I bet some uh, enterprising fighters are going to bring their own. Don't you think? Have somebody uh, drive up in the Donald Cerrone style RV situation with a cooler full of your favorite uh, post-fight beers. That's what See, I would. Maybe do. this is how we we make some money. We fill up an RV. And then we wait for them to all get disappointed, realize that they only get these weak-ass Utah beers, and we go, hey, who wants a 7% IPA from a Montana brewery? We brought it right down here for you guys. 12 bucks. Yeah. You know, it has taken a long time, but I believe we've finally found our calling as bootleggers. Yep. That was, that's, you know what? It feels right. Yeah. I think that it, we, we should have been able to guess this is where I was going to end up. This 1930s-style prohibition era bootleggers 